say a big thank you to the ladies having their ladies' Christmas parade. I got the benefit of that. Thanks. I want to thank the ladies that didn't show up because I got a Chick-fil-A box lunch out of it. They bring the good gear and the I just want to put it that way. They should have showed up. But uh, it was really good. I haven't been to Chick-fil-A in a while. 102. I thought about that, Arletta. My dad would have been 102 this year. And that is such an amazing journey. You don't hear that too often. But uh, God bless you. Well, it's good to see everybody. Thank you for weathering all the dangers and coming here. Uh, we had a good group this morning, and uh, we a little, feel a little thin, but I understand people's concern. Um, need to be as careful as you can, safe as you can. Uh, some of us thought we were doing all of that, and we still got it, so you just don't know. But all praise the Lord. We're uh, getting close to pretty much 100%. Thank the Lord. Um, 12 days to Christmas. Let me just say something about grace first. This is uh, the last Sunday we'll talk about it. If uh, you go to Push Pay or you go to our website, you can choose other and just put grace first there. We're collecting funds for the soup kitchen, local soup kitchen, and one of the food pantries at Hope City Vineyard Church. So uh, last Sunday, this Sunday, we're just going to promote it. Um, if you still do what some people still do is write checks. Please make the check out to Grace First. It goes into a Grace First account, and they distribute the funds accordingly. So um, if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 2. It's good to have some of the little ones in here. It really is refreshing to hear the noise. really doesn't distract me at all. Paisley and Jackson, uh, it's, good to, it's good to see the little ones in here. Hadley. Hadley made some great pictures this, this uh, what, last week or so, and she will tell you all about it. You just give her a chance. Um, but Matthew chapter 2, I want you to follow this with me because I'm, I'm sharing a message on giving is really the spirit of Christmas. You can't separate giving and Christmas. It's just like they're blended together, and Christmas is about giving, and giving is about Christmas. So here we go. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, uh, they're called wise men in some translations, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ, the Messiah, was to be born. And their reply was in Bethlehem, uh, for this is what the prophet had written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared to them. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. 
After they heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed on coming into the house. They saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of frankincense. It says of incense, but it's, it's actually frankincense and mirth. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. That's not the end of the story, but it's all I'm going to read this morning. Here's a couple of questions that I want to pose to you. And the first one is this. Who are these people? And where did they come from? This is probably one of the great mysteries in the Bible. It doesn't matter how much you Google this and research this. There's all kinds of speculation. The truth is we really do not know specifically who they were and where they came from. Because Matthew doesn't record this. Now, I mentioned earlier in the early service, if Luke was recording this, he probably would have told us their names. Because that's the way he wrote. Anything, anybody that had anything to do with the birth of Jesus, whether it was Simeon, Anna, everybody, even the ones who had orchestrated this tax that they were compelled to go to Bethlehem and register for, he gives the names of all the, the Roman rulers that was in charge. And Luke was one of these investigative guys. He would interview people. Before he wrote the gospel, he said, I've interviewed all these people just to make sure that what I am writing to you is accurate. Well, Matthew didn't have that compulsion. He didn't write from specifics. So that's why we look at this and we say, who are these people and where did they come from? The word magi actually, and we actually get some of our Christmas from this because they, they presented the Christ child gifts. But the, the wise man, the magi is the exact word. It's short for magician are astrologers, and most believe this was old Persian word, which is present-day Iran. This was of the Persian descent of people. So the speculation rests more on that they came from Persia. So let me just kind of speculate a little bit more why it's quite possible. And you might say, well, why is it important? Well, how did men who were out-of-towners out from their country show up in Jerusalem asking this question, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? Why are a bunch of outsiders interested in someone who's born in line to be the king of Jews? These were non-Jewish people. So I've kind of come to my own conclusion, and I might as well come to my own conclusion because everybody else has come to their conclusion. So I'm going to put my conclusion right next to everybody else's. How's that? But I believe that part of the reason why these people had an interest in the king of the Jews is that if they were from O-Persia, then it's quite possible that they were very familiar with a popular Jewish prophet in their country just a few hundred years before they arrived, and that prophet was Daniel. And in Daniel's prophecy, remember that Daniel was taken as a young man along with other young men by 
by the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, to put them into high-level work. And as they were remaining in Babylon, representing the kingdom of God, they never left their faith. They stood their faith even when it cost them possibly their lives or the attempt of taking their lives. So it was Daniel on the night that he went in and told the king of Babylon, God is going to rip the kingdom that you have out of your hands tonight. And that prophecy was fulfilled because the Medo-Persian army camped outside the walls of Babylon, which they knew they were out there, but they said they can't take over this city. The walls are too great. They made an aqueduct to redirect a water that went under the walls. That was their water source. And while they were partying that night, the Medo-Persian army went under the wall and took over that city with hardly a battle. And Daniel was the one that said, the Medo-Persian, the Persian people are going to take over and they're going to be the next kingdom. Now, I don't know about you, but I think if they heard of Daniel and that Daniel prophesied that, he would be kind of like a rock star to them. But also he prophesied and wrote that the Messiah was coming and some believe the way he spoke of it, that Messiah would be cut off in these group of seven years, of 69 years, that he would be cut off and some have calculated that he prophesied the exact year of the crucifixion of Jesus. So if these were Persians, they would know all of this or have some kind of acquaintance. So I'm just going to come to the conclusion myself this morning that they came from Persia. Not that it might be a very important thing to you, but we know that they were not present when Jesus was born. We know that. And I have messed up people's idea of the nativity scene, that the shepherds were there on the night that Jesus was born, but the wise men were not. Sorry I'm messing up your nativity scene. Because they weren't there the night that Jesus was born. They were in route. They already knew he had been born. They just wanted to know where. And they, how long it took them, we know that from the calculation, and even Herod, Herod questioned these men and says, when did the star, when did you first see the star? Because he was calculating maybe the time frame that this child was born, and in his mind, that child was a challenge to his authority. And when he told them, when you find him, you come and tell me because I really want to come and worship him as well. But several Christmases ago, I mentioned this in a message, and I just wrecked somebody's nativity scene. Because these guys didn't show up at the birth of Jesus. It was much later. So not only did they show up, but why did they pursue this? Why were they compelled? This is the next question I want to ask you. Why did they go to all this trouble, travel that far, if indeed from Persia? And some thought, think that they might have come as far away as India. It probably been about three or four by then. But why? Why did they, what compelled them? It said that they were guided by this star, but this is, look at verse 2 again. This is their motivation. Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Some reason they felt such a compelling to find him because they had this passion to worship this child. 
I'm telling you, worship of people was not that compelling when it came to little little ones. Now, some kings wanted self-worship. And really, when you looked at Herod, he couldn't really have room in his heart to worship anybody but himself. He was more inclined to kill this child before he could challenge his own authority. And listen, Herod had been in rule for 30 plus years. It wasn't like he didn't have his authority set up. This just shows you how fragile some monarchs are. So Matthew writes this, and these men caused a disturbance with Herod. He caused a disturbance in all of Jerusalem. Herod turns to the experts, the Jewish leaders, and says, we figured it out in prophecy that it's bedtime. So God shows up at just the right time at Bethlehem. And here's where I think it really gets interesting. I doubt that they were very impressed with Herod's promise. But they did not know where when they were in Jerusalem. Can you agree with me down on that? They were asking people. They followed this star, but something happened that they didn't see the star. They lost sight of the star. The star was no longer appearing to them. And when they left Herod and headed toward that seven-mile journey, Bethlehem is only about seven miles. And, and, and if you look at a modern map of Israel today, Bethlehem is in the West Bank. It's, it's, it's in Palestinian control. It's only seven miles from Jerusalem, but it's over in the West Bank. Thankfully, I got to visit Bethlehem a couple of times before all of that happened. And there's the church in the Nativity, which built over where they say, this is the little stable that Jesus was born in, and it's kind of like a holy, when I say it's a holy site, it's kind of like it has special powers, and they light candles and all this. But it's amazing to see that this little town so close to Jerusalem, when they headed toward that town, all of a sudden the star appeared again and directed them to the exact house where that child was living with his parents. Now watch this. They fell on their knees when they went inside that house and they saw that child with Mary. They fell on their faces and they worshiped him. They came for that specific reason. And that old fox king Herod was not interested in worshiping Jesus, but these guys went all that way. But watch this. As soon as they worshiped him, it said they opened their treasures and started laying these expensive gifts in front of the child. Nowhere do we see Mary or anybody saying, you know, really, we're not comfortable with you doing this. We're kind of like, uh, who are you? Why are you doing this? Why are you here? I think they were still mesmerized by the whole idea that they had the Messiah that they were raising as this toddler, totally dependent on them to orchestrate everything around them. And I don't think they had lifted any resistance to these men worshiping the Lord. And out of that worship came giving. And that's why I don't think you can separate worship and giving. Even when we were singing some of the songs, you deserve the glory. You are worthy of all things. Do you see how worthy, the word worthy is so close to the word worship? Worship comes out of the word worth. We treasure things and that kind of translates to worship. Especially we treasure the Lord, we give him worth. Even the old Hebrew word kabod, the glory of God, 
actually means heaviness. And here's gold. Gold was the most precious thing you could give to anybody. But you know how gold's value was, was calculated? By weight. Kabod was the weightiness of God. And when they walked into that room and they saw that child, the weightiness of God's glory compelled them to fall on their faces and to worship. The church, we the people of God, we don't come just on Sundays to worship Him. We worship Him every day, right? We give Him what He deserves, and that is our souls, our minds. We open the treasures of our own heart, and we throw everything of meaning and purpose at His feet. These men did not bring gift cards to put at His feet. And they didn't take some credit cards and go buy a bunch of stuff that would take them the next few years to pay off, like we do. They had, they brought everything that was special to them, gold, frankincense, and mirth, and these were highly expensive things. This was just out of the seamlessness of worship they were giving to the Lord. I, I go back to that great generation. I saw something that somebody posted on Facebook about uh, J- Jimmy Stewart, James Stewart, the actor, uh, had went over into World War One and kind of like Ted Williams, Ted Williams left the Boston Red Sox in the prime of his playing years to sign up for the war. It was it was movie stars that she went over. That that, that would be something different, wouldn't it? Um, but sports people, they just they would left. They went over into the this great war and. And Stewart also went and had all kind of bombing missions that he was on. And, and that's the generation that my dad was in. My dad fought in the entirety of World War II. He, he uh, signed up for the Army in March of 41. And he and my mom got married in October of 41. And two months later, Japan bombed Pearl Harbor. And he was in active duty through the rest of the war all the way to 45 when the war was over. He, he was stationed in Guam at the end of the war and flew some of the final bombing missions over Japan out of Guam in a B-29 bomber. He was a pilot of that bomber. So he, he was, apart from my mom, large chunks of time during World War. And they said that's the great generation. Why do you think that generation was so great? Is it was it World War II that defined them? And I think we I think we jumped too close to too quick to a conclusion that that's what defined them. That is not what defined them. That is not what made them the great generation. Again, this is my idea of what made them a great generation. Most of these were young people, not even if you were eighteen and. In 1941, you was born in 1923. And in six years after, 1923 was the stock market collapse and the Great Depression. And it went into the early 30s, mid-30s, and started tapering off. But these people lived through the Great Depression when they, they lived on barely enough food. Beans or whatever they could get their hands on, that's what, how they lived. It was scarcity. That generation was ready to serve. They signed up. Marshall Abels lied about his age. He was a sharecropper teenager. 
in Texas and lied about his age so that he could sign up for World War II. That's what made them the great generation. And, and they believed everything had value. You didn't throw any food away at my mother's house. It was a sin. <laughs> it was a sin. They had leftovers. They ate. Nothing was thrown away. Maybe the chicken bones were thrown away, but it was like, and they knew the value of food. They knew the value of work. They knew the value of dedication. Children's expectations today when it comes to Christmas can be so unreasonable. And who has conditioned that? When we condition them to expect a greater and more grander gift exchange, Next year that they got this year, it builds unreasonable expectations. And parents are more and more under pressure to try to meet those expectations. My mom, my mom had a great way of helping us. If we were disappointed in anything we got, after about a five-minute talk, we were very polite. She just had a way of convincing us again she was born in 1923. She understood the gravity of scarcity. And she could just help us to be appreciative of whatever we got. My, my family's birthday, my family's Christmases were great. We didn't get a whole lot. There was ages like it happened to be the 10 or right in there. When you hit 10, you could pretty much expect that you got a new bicycle. And my sister and I, the closest one, both of us got a, a new bicycle. And we have home movies with us dressed for Christmas on those bicycles riding around that gravel driveway in 25 acres of land. And when you turned 16, you knew what you was going to get. You was going to get a watch among a few other items. You, did, you just didn't get a whole lot because there wasn't a whole lot to get. I wondered, should we step back and say, why? what is the motivation? We knew what the motivation of the Glasnian but what is the motivation for us at Christmas? Is it to satisfy our children and satisfy each other with what we give each other? Because the most, the most used question this time of the year is either this, right now, what are you getting for Christmas? Do you know what you're getting for Christmas? Or when it's Christmas time or after, what did you get for Christmas? Right? That's the question. And that's the way we would ask it. There's some people ask, what, is, what did Santa bring me for Christmas? And see, that was by profanity on my mama's side and my dad's side. But do we, do we so focus on that that the gifts are the deal? I think we can say, yeah, the, the gifts can be the deal. But my dad always said he didn't want any gifts. So we gave him Ryan's uh, steakhouse gift bag because they just love Ryan's. And he would take that. So he would, he said, don't you bring me anything. I don't need anything. He said, just you guys being here is my gift. But that man and that woman had every, had something for every one of the many grandchildren they had. And that's what they focused on was the grandchildren. And it was a bunch of stuff, but it was, they just took time. It was a great time getting together. We knew what Christmas was about. It was about Jesus' birthday, and we would sing carols, and we would 
would just celebrate the Lord and the gift giving just flowed out of that. This is what I'm trying to share with you is that worship and giving are seamless. You give to what you think is of value to you. This is what we do. We we don't invest in things that, that has no value to us. We we have a value system in our giving really is linked to our value system. I want the praise team to come up. And we're going to have a time of worship here at the end. But let me just focus on a couple of statements in the word of God as they come. We are so familiar with John 3.16. Listen to it. For God so loved. God so loved the world that he what? way God so valued a fallen world God was so interested in the state of mankind that he valued mankind to the point that he gave his only begotten son later on in Romans Paul writes this the wages of sin is death but the gift of God Romans 6 23 but the gift of God the gift of of God, not a gift, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. He gave Jesus because He valued us. And He valued everybody in your family. He valued the people you work with. He valued your neighbors. He, he valued every person you come in contact with. He gave His Son for them. God, help us to be more intentional in making that reality a subject of our conversation with them. That God loves you so much. That Christmas is about His love for you. That He gave His Son for you. This is the greatest Christmas gift of all. And we have seen the grace of God. We have experienced His sacrificial death. We experience the power of his resurrection when he comes to our hearts and changes our lives from the inside out. Salvation is not a reforming of person. All the institutions that's supposed to reform people don't do a very good job. But when Jesus saves you, he saves you from the inside out, doesn't he? Stand with me if you would. Lord, we worship you because we're compelled to. We're compelled to like these men who came from so far just to see, just to be in the presence of that child, to bow down and worship and give him the best they had. May we be no less than that, Lord, for these moments that we conclude the service, that we worship you from the very depths of our being and we value you to the point that we give you ourselves out of the treasures of our own lives Lord everything we can be and everything we would ever be Lord we lay it at your feet as our way of saying you deserve the glory you deserve the honor and we worship you we worship you Jesus oh Jesus be glorified this morning as we who are gathered in this room and those who are watching live stream 
pause right now just to say, Lord Jesus, be glorified, be exalted. We worship you. We give you, we surrender ourselves to you. We lay our lives before you. Compelled as worship.